Good morning. Can I ask everyone to take your seats, please? The scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 32, through 5, verse 11. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which translated son of encouragement, sold the field he'd owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, Why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church, and on all who heard these things. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, wow. That was quite a story. Um, you know, many people, when we read the book of Acts, many Christians look at uh, these incredible accounts, these stories of what God was doing that are recorded in the book of Acts, just amazing work of God working in people's lives and growing the church, and they are amazing. 3,000 people uh, were baptized in one day. Uh, there, was, there was a healing. We looked at that the past couple weeks. There was vibrant life together church community. There was powerful preaching, and people often look at that and say, we need to go back to the days of Acts. We need to be like the early church. The church today is 
is often full of problems, we're, we're weak, we're ineffective in many ways. We need to go back to these days, the days of the early church. And then we read a story like this one that we just heard, and our reaction is, well, not, not that one, <laughs> everything except that. Really what we heard, there are two stories going on, and they're told side by side. These two stories are meant to be read together. Both are stories, I think, of a church we would not want to be in. The first story is, is uh, in chapter 4, 32 through 37. This is about how in the first church, this is pretty incredible, there were no needy people, there was no poverty. But how was this possible? The story is told about a man named Joseph. He sold a field that he owned. He took all the money from the sale of that field. He laid it at the feet of the church. Then there's the second story, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It's more dramatic. It's probably more disturbing to us. There's a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who lied about selling their property to give to the poor and both drop dead. This book, Acts, is supposed to make us want to be a part of the church, not run the other way as fast as we can. So here we have a couple, a, peop- a family selling their land, they sell their property, and they give it all to the church. And then we have people dropping dead. This is not something you would put on a church flyer. I got a church flyer a few weeks ago. I'm not a big fan of church flyers, but they're, they're fine. Let people know that you're there. But people were smiling on this church fi- flyer. It said, come to our church. You will be transformed. Your life will never be the same. You'll be a better person. This flyer <laughs> here in Acts 4 and 5 would say, come to our church. Sell your home and give us the money. <laughs> and if you lie... You might, die. you might die right there on the spot. <laughs> that is not a church we would go to. What are we supposed to get out of these stories? There was a new survey released this, uh, this past week, uh, reported on by Ligonier Ministries, about the beliefs of Americans, uh, Christian and non-Christian. People were asked whether they agree with this statement. Worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. And 58% of Americans would agree with that statement. Most Americans think church is optional or worshiping community is optional. And my response to this, my honest response is, I think I understand why. Because there are some, some times in my life where I wish church was optional too. I've been in church most of my life, pretty much all my life. I've seen church at its best and it's beautiful. And I've seen church at its worst. And it's not beautiful. It's pretty ugly. But what keeps me in church, actually stories like this, it's the honest realism of the Bible. If the Bible was full of polished and flawless and perfect characters and churches, I would think two things. I would think, number one, I'm not like that. Our church is not flawless and perfect like that. And number two, if all we were hearing was how amazing people were, how their lives, they found Jesus and they smiled all the way the rest of their lives until they died and life was easy for them. I would say the Bible must be hiding something because I know life is not like that. The truth is the Bible doesn't hide or cover out how very imperfect and messed up all of its leaders were. 
and churches, even from the very beginning, like here in the book of Acts. Only Jesus is presented as perfect and flawless, and everyone else has a long way to go. But at the same time, the Bible's not ashamed to present to us pictures of the church at its best, giving us glimpses of of the leaders of the church, of churches as a whole, as communities, as pictures of what Jesus can do with very broken people. So this passage, it gives us these two stories. It puts two things side by side, the church at its best and the church at its worst. As we get into it, I think it's, it might not be exactly what we expect. What comes to mind when you think of the best church? How would you define that? What do you see as church at its worst? What we learn here is what God sees, church at its best, church at its worst. We're going to look at those two things, and then we're going to look at how Jesus responds to people and churches when they're at their worst. This, this passage speaks about our corporate life as a church, but it also has implications for each one of us as we learn what are the best things that God wants to build into my life. If I am a Christian, if I become a Christian, what does he want to build? What are the best things? And then what are the worst things that God would say, avoid this, avoid these things at all costs? Let's look at this. First, the church at its best. We're going to look at chapter 4 here, 32 through 37. Most of Acts, if you read it, it's it's full of narrative. So Acts is is narrating these stories about the church. But as you read the book of Acts, what you'll find is that Luke, the author, has a technique. Regularly throughout the book of Acts, he will pause. He will stop. And he will give a summary statement. So he'll tell these stories and he'll pause and say, let me just show you so you don't miss it what's happening here. Here's what God is doing. There's about seven of these, actually about nine. There's two that I want to point out here in the book. When you compare the first summary statement, we looked at it a number of weeks ago, Acts 2, 42 through 47, with this summary statement here in Acts 4, what you'll notice is they have two things in common. Those two things are the gospel is being taught and radical generosity is meeting needs. In Acts 2, the first summary statement, it starts off, it says, the church, the very first thing he wants to tell us, pause, summary statement, the church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. That was their primary focus. But then in Acts 2, 44 through 45, Luke says, all the believers were together. They held all things in common. They sold their property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. And so here in Acts 4, we see this again. Verse 33, what does he say? It says, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection. And then in verse 32, how it all begins, the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. Instead, they held everything in common. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them because all who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. Why does Acts, here at the very beginning, first four chapters, pause two times to make sure that we see these two things? The church was constantly teaching and constantly learning, and at the same time, they were constantly generous and meeting needs. I think Acts is trying to tell us something. 
Here is what Jesus sees as the best church, the kind of church Jesus thinks is the best. There is a focus. There is a hunger on doctrine, on teaching. The gospel is being preached, and there is a focus on the poor. Radical generosity is meeting needs. There is a practical, a very personal pursuit of justice and addressing inequalities in the community. That's church at its best, according to Acts. And I don't know if you've experienced this. In my experience, this is true. Often churches will do one or the other better. They will say, we're a teaching church. We'll focus on teaching. Or often churches say, we're a church that wants to make a practical difference in our community. Here, Acts says, you need them both to go hand in hand. Generosity without the gospel, it will lack motivation. Often, it will start off strong, but it will rarely last. It will rarely be sacrificial and often is done just for show, as we'll see in the next story. But the gospel, the teaching, without generosity is likely just a dead faith. You can see the book of James on that. A love for being right without a love for people. The best churches are marked by gospel truth and gospel generosity. And what we find from history is that this twofold emphasis, it didn't just characterize this one church in Jerusalem at the very beginning. It actually spread. Churches like this spread throughout the Roman Empire, and it lasted. These two things, I think we could make the argument, were the two main factors that caused this group of 120 people here at the very beginning of the book of Acts. 120 people, they believed in Jesus, that he rose from the dead. They were called to his mission, and by the end of Acts, the gospel has spread even to the heart of the Roman Empire. Two and three hundred years later, it had spread throughout the Greco-Roman world. The two things that made the difference, the distinct beliefs of Christianity and the radical generosity of Christians. I don't know if you've heard of this. There was a, um, a letter written in the very, very early days of the church, one of the first uh, letters and pieces of literature we have after the New Testament, written by a guy named Justin Martyr. And he wrote something called an apology. It wasn't him saying, I'm sorry. It was actually an apology as in a defense. And what he was doing was defending the Christian faith to the Roman emperor. So he wrote a letter to the Roman emperor. And it's a fascinating letter. You can find it online. It's very relevant for us today in explaining Christian faith to those who find it hard to understand or difficult to believe. He focuses on three things. First, he clarifies misconceptions about what Christianity is and what Christians believe. So he clarifies that. And then he appeals to the Roman emperor through reason and logic. He presents a case for the faith. And then thirdly, he talks about the impact of Christianity on people's lives. Here's what he said. We, this was written in about 110 or 115, 120 um, AD, we who once coveted most greedily the wealth and the fortune of others, now we place in common the goods we possess, dividing them with the needy. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what Luke is saying happened in the very first church. Justin Martyr was saying the Christian faith is rational and the Christian faith is powerful. It can set people free from greed and coveting. Practically, personally, it can bring justice to the world. 
when we look at this, we might be thinking a few things, and I want to point out from the text uh, some objections or thoughts you might be having. Number one, what's just being described here, this is not communism. Often commentators will make that point because nothing was forced here. It's not a forced redistribution of wealth. This is about communal, communal ownership that was voluntary. This was not a forced communal ownership. This is not communism, but at the same time, this is not capitalism either where we say, I retain my ultimate right over my money and possessions. This is not about private ownership. This is about a full-orbed understanding of God's ownership of all of my life and all that I have. Look at verse 32. It says, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. One uh, translator says, one way we could translate that is, no one staked a claim on his possessions. Now, if, if we think about human life, uh, the very first words out of a little baby's mouth, I don't know what your children or what your words, uh, first, first words were, but often the first word is no, right? No. And that's like, I'm setting myself up as an independent person and I have a little bit of selfishness here. No. But maybe the third or the fourth or the fifth word of a little child is often mine isn't it? This is mine. Mine. We're staking a claim on our possessions from a very early age. We don't like to share. I don't like to share. My wife, Amelia, can tell you I don't like sharing my food with her. She said, let's order. Can we share? I'll always pause for a long time if we have to. I don't like sharing my new books with anyone or my me time with interruptions. What Acts is saying is that the gospel puts a new stake in the ground, right in the very center of our hearts. God says, mine. All of who we are, all we have is his. My Christian friends, let me ask you, who has claim to your resources? We can talk about justice, equality, helping the needy, but true impact begins when we say, I no longer stake a claim on anything I own, anything that I've been given by God. What's remarkable about what happened here, like I said, it's not mandatory. This wasn't expected. This was just happening. Yet so many people gave and the needy were served. How did this happen? We could say a lot, but Here's what I want to point out. It's when the, doc, the gospel doctrine hit home. One commentator says, do you see what's missing here? In the book of Acts, in the early chapters, there's, not, there's no specific teaching about money or about possessions. There's no asking for money or saying, then they pass the plate or that kind of thing. It was a spontaneous response, it seems, when the gospel hit home. It went like this, if Jesus has given everything for me, if this is how much I am worth to him, he will take care of me. If I am being resurrected with Jesus, they were giving testimony to the resurrection, if I will live in a new creation with him forever, that is unlimited and everlasting in its abundance, then what's my money? What's my investments? What security can they give me? I have greater security. I have greater status in Jesus than I could ever have in anything I own. That's a glimpse of church at its best. Let's move on. Chapter 5, 1 through 11. 
the next story, Ananias and Sapphira. In order to understand what this is all about, we have to see how Acts starts getting very personal here. This isn't just a general summary. Uh, We're talking about three specific people here in the early church and their stories. 36 through 37, this is about a story about Joseph, a very short story. It tells us there's a guy named Joseph. He was a part of the priestly class, a Levite. Um, So he was a wealthy man. He had social standing. He owned property. And Joseph was a man of generosity and encouragement. He was an example of church at its best. And he got a nickname from the apostles. You see that? They said, okay, there's Joseph. Look at this guy, what he's doing. There's too many Josephs out there. Too many Josephs in this church. We have a lot of Eric's and David's in this church. We need to have some nicknames here. They called him Barnabas. They're like, Barney, that's you. You're Barney. Barnabas is, uh, it means the son of encouragement. This guy is an encouragement in what he does, in who he is. So this is Barney. Everyone's calling him Barney. Then we come to this couple, uh, chapter 5, 1 through 2. Let's read that. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge, and he brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. You see the parallels? They were doing exactly what they saw Barney doing in 36 and 37. We have a lot of questions about what happened here. I kind of want to take those one by one. Why would they do this first? Why would a couple do this, Ananias and Sapphira? What did they have to gain from pretending to sell their property and give it to the church? Luke places these two very personal stories side by side to show us why Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted a nickname too. You know, they wanted a power couple mashup name, Anaphira or Sapphias. I'm being silly and facetious there. They wanted the nickname. They wanted what the nickname represented. They wanted recognition. They wanted the approval and the status that Barnabas had without the heart of Barnabas. Have you ever wanted status, recognition, and approval from others in a way that caused you to act like someone that you are not? Do you know what that's like? Even when it makes you lie? This is the story of my life in middle school. I'll just tell you that. There was a good friend of mine. He was my idol. He was a good friend. He was two years older than me. He was super popular in middle school. And I said, I want to be super popular in middle school too. So I will do everything just like him. Since he got mostly C's and D's, I said, I'm going to get mostly C's and D's. Since he got in trouble a lot in school, I said, I'm going to get in trouble a lot in school. Since he was a good dancer, I said, I will try to be a good dancer. (laughs) But when this happens in church, it's not funny. When this happens as we grow older, it becomes very serious. In church, there's no acting like a Christian type to become popular. This is not what God wants. This is church at its worst. Let me move on. Why were they judged so harshly? And we might say, this is what I don't like about the Bible and the stories of the Bible, stories of judgment. How could this happen? Well, it's important to note um, this judgment. Their death was not because they didn't give everything to the church. 
And it was not because they held some of the proceeds back for themselves. You see what Peter said in 3 and 4. You didn't have to sell it. And when you sold it, you didn't have to give us anything. What was the judgment for? The judgment was for lying, for hypocrisy, and for pretending. We also need to note here what happens to Ananias and Sapphira. God bringing this kind of a very immediate judgment. Never, as far as I'm aware, this never happens again in the Bible, this kind of immediate judgment. And as far as I know, it's never happened in church history. I've never heard a story about this happening. God chose this one incident. He was dealing very personally with Ananias and Sapphira. He knew their heart. Peter says, God knows what's going on in your heart. So he, de- he was dealing personally with them, but he was also showing the church here at the very beginning, the one thing that will kill the church, the worst sin in the church, hypocrisy. And we might say, why couldn't God just let this go? Was it really that bad? Well, let me ask you, what happens if God were to allow hypocrisy to happen in the church, unchecked, unaddressed? Would that not be the death of the church? Because then the church would be a lie, a pretend church. Hypocrisy is church at its worst, and Christians are at their worst when they act in hypocrisy and pretending. If that's true, we need to know what is hypocrisy. We may have all heard, we probably have thought this ourselves, hypocrisy is one of the main reasons that people have for not going to church, for writing off the church in their lives. Becoming cynical about the church, 85% of young people outside of the church, according to one study, have had sufficient exposure to Christians and churches. They conclude present-day Christianity is hypocritical, 85%. What is hypocrisy? First, we need to know what we're not talking about. Hypocrisy is not when we're talking about people who don't live up to what they hope to be. Not about people who can't live up to what they say is right and good. That's everyone. Everyone is a hypocrite, according to that definition. That's definitely me. Not people who are inconsistent with their standards, who still blow it and who still, still fail and fall, sometimes miserably. That's not hypocrisy. What hypocrisy is is people who don't live up to their standards, who are inconsistent, who blow it and fail and pretend that they aren't and don't. Religious hypocrisy is using religious talk, religious behavior as a cover, as a mask to hide who we really are and the sin and the brokenness that we have. You know, the word hypocrisy comes from the Greek. It means literally to wear a mask, to wear a mask. Halloween is coming up. Obviously, we wear costumes and masks on Halloween. I'll never forget one Halloween party I went to in college. I was still getting to know this group of people, and all these people came to this Halloween party, and one guy showed up, and he was wearing a mask. And it was, it was the scream mask. You know that scream mask? It's a very freaky mask. But he wouldn't talk, and he wouldn't take off the mask for the whole party. And after a while, we're getting, like, freaked out. <laughs> who, is this? who is this guy? Like, is he invited? Who are you? What are you doing? He didn't take it off for hours till like, three hours later. We're all wondering, who is this? Hypocrisy 
is when we're wearing a mask and people don't know who we really are. The opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection. It's authenticity or confession, taking off the mask. This kind of hypocrisy that was happening here with Ananias and Sapphira, Peter said, this is lying to God. He said, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? He said, in putting a mask before people, you lied not to people. Ultimately, you lied to God. You tested the Spirit of the Lord. But here's the thing. If there is a God, and I believe there is, then lying to God is impossible. It's not even an option for us. If he knows all things, an all-knowing God, all-powerful God, it's not even an option. And it could be said, though, that the one thing that God cannot deal with is someone who lies to him. Because lying is denying two things, who we really are and who he really is. Charles Spurgeon said, the only way in which the hypocrite can play the hypocrite at all is by forgetting the existence of God. Because God knows everything about us. And so the worst thing we can do is try to hide who we are and where we're at from God. The truth is, at one level or another, we all do this. I do this. We are all hypocrites. We all pretend. We all wear masks. And the church is to be the one community on the planet where it's safe to take the masks off. But we will never be fully free from hypocrisy. Well, let me ask you, why? Why do we do it? Why even try? Why wear the masks? Why pretend? Isn't it because we're afraid to take the mask off? We're afraid to be seen for who we really are, especially to be seen at our worst, which takes us to our third point. Jesus for churches and people at their worst. What is the cure? What's the antidote for hypocrisy then? There's something I never really saw. I never noticed it until this week. I said the Bible is very honest, right, about the failings and the shortcomings of its leaders and its churches. Well, there are two people. These two people were here this day, okay? The day that this happened, these two people were here. They saw what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, in their lying and in their hypocrisy. And these two people later fell so deep into hypocrisy that they had to be confronted. They had to be called out in front of the entire church by a fellow Christian, the Apostle Paul. Do you know who these two people were? And I'm almost ashamed to say it. It was the Apostle Peter, and it was Barnabas. Let me show you where this is told. There's a story told in Galatians. Some of us are studying Galatians this fall. If we could go to the slide, Galatians um, 2, 12 through 14. Um, here's the story. I know we're jumping right into Galatians, but I'll explain. For before certain men came from James, the Jerusalem church, uh, Peter, he's talking about Peter, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid 
the motivation underneath all hypocrisy, fear, of those who belong to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, Cephas, his, that's his nickname, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you, like a, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Here's what's going on. Out of fear, out of fear of not being seen as religious and holy enough by their fellow Jews, Peter and Barnabas stopped eating with non-Jewish Christians. And Paul came right at them and said, you are hypocrites. You're putting on a mask to hide the fact that you're just like a Gentile. You're just as sinful. You're just as messed up. You're just as in need of Jesus as them. What you eat and who you eat with doesn't change that. Acting religious out of fear of what people will think. Peter, Barnabas, you forgot the gospel. I said earlier, Charles Spurgeon said, the only way in which the hypocrite can play the hypocrite at all is by forgetting the existence of God. Let me add to that. The only way in which the hypocrite can stay a hypocrite is not by understanding or by forgetting the gospel. Let's go back to the story. What would have happened if, instead of lying, Ananias and Sapphira said, we're not, we're not going to lie. We saw what happened here with Barnabas and Joseph, and things were going on in our heart. And so they, instead of selling their property, instead of doing what they did, what if they said this instead? They came to Peter, and they said to the leaders of the church, guys, we saw what Joseph did, how he sold the land he owned, he brought it all to you. He laid it at your feet. You gave him a nickname. And we thought, wow, man, we wish we were generous like that. We wish we were free from the grip of money like that. We saw, we saw how Barnabas was praised. He was held up as an example for the church. We wanted to be like him. We wanted a nickname like his too, but we're not like him. We can't do what he did. We also kind of resented him. Thought maybe he was a show-off. And the truth is, Peter, I'm stuck in the grip of money still. I'm too afraid to let it go. It has a hold on me. It's my security. It's my status, too. I know the needy are out there. I know there's poor people, but honestly, I don't care. I care more about myself. Help. Can Jesus help me? It sounds ugly. It sounds bad. Somebody at their worst. But what is that called? That's called honest confession. It's an honest confession of sin. To Jesus, it's not ugly. To Jesus, it is not the worst. It's beautiful. It's not a cause for rejection. It would be a cause for celebration and embrace. Never, never. Ever has God turned away someone who comes in honest confession and says, this is where I'm at. Help. How is this possible? Jesus brings two things together that we never thought could go together. 
He brings great grace and he brings great fear together at the same time. If you look at verse uh, 33, chapter 4, 33, you see this is the church at its best. Great grace was on them all. Great grace. And then 5.11, and it's also, I think, in 5.3 uh, or 5. Great fear came upon the whole church. When great fear and great grace come together in Jesus, we can be free of hypocrisy. To be free, we need to be shown our sin. We need to face the worst about us. The mask needs to become off to be free of hypocrisy. Something needs to be greater than our fear of what other people think about us. Something needs to be greater than our fear of what we think about ourselves. And that something is, according to the gospel, the fear of God. The reality of God and His holiness needs to become the greatest reality in our life. That's what this, it's not fear of God's punishment, it is fear of God and all His awesome holiness. It is a deep reverence which exposes our sin. And at the same time, we need to be loved. When our sin is revealed, when the mask comes off, and we are seen at our worst, when the mask comes off, we need to be embraced, approved, and accepted. We see these two things together at the cross. At the cross, sin is unmasked for what it is. Deserving of judgment. It's a fearful thing. At the cross, we see God's great grace and love for what they are. Unstoppable, unfazed at our worst. At the cross, God tells us, I see you. I saw you at your worst. You know about 10% of it. I know 100%. And I came for you. And I love you still. What this means is, when are we really at our worst? How we answer this question reveals whether we understand the gospel, whether we understand Christianity. It's such a surprising answer. This is misunderstood by most Christians, and this should never get old for Christians. When am I really at my worst? It's not when I'm a sinner sinning. It's when I'm a sinner pretending. Hiding. The more we grow, the less we pretend because of our worship of Jesus and his grace. And as that keeps growing, the more we're free from hypocrisy. The more a church grows and matures, the safer it is for everyone to stop pretending. I'll close with this. This is why the Apostle Paul Near the end of his life, he wrote three letters. He wrote letters to uh, the pastors that he was mentoring. He was passing on um, his, his mission to them, the care of the churches. Near the end of his life, he did this thing. He collected these sayings. If you look at First, Second Timothy, and Titus, you'll see these sayings are repeated. And Paul says in three times or, or more, I think five times in those letters, he says, this is a trustworthy saying Worthy of full acceptance. He repeats this to, to, to Timothy and to Titus, meaning this is something you should repeat often. And he says this in 1 Timothy 1.15. We read it already in our liturgy of confession. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
of whom I am the worst. There's nothing more transformative to the human heart than being seen at our worst and still being loved. My friends, that is what Jesus does for us. Always. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray right now for all of us as we've listened to your word, and we're in varying degrees of hiding, pretending, wearing masks. We struggle with it. We're so afraid of what people might think. We're so afraid of of what we think of ourselves. But I pray you would set us free. You would set us free when we see not only how great you are, that our fear and our reverence would be for you above all things, but we see the greatness, the surprising incredibleness of your grace that you move towards us when we think we're at our worst. May we be a church like that. Jesus, would you make Trinity a a church where we're free to take off our masks and when we feel like we're at our worst to point each other to you and your transforming love? And would you work in that of freedom when we're free from worrying about how we look and trying to check off all the right boxes and trying to look very religious and good, that when you set us free from that, that all of a sudden right there would emerge a generosity that cares for people who are struggling. Make us into a church like that. And at this, at this table that we're about to come, come to, would you meet us? Would you remind us that it is safe to come to you with where we're at? And would you do your healing work? Would this be a moment and a time of celebration in our lives where you set us free from hypocrisy and you set us free from sin and it is our joy to follow after you? We pray that in your powerful name. Amen. This morning we get to celebrate.